Choosing a medical specialty, an inevitable part of any medic's journey, but are we really prepared to make that decision? Hi, I'm Chantal Corbin, and this is A Doctor's Insight, the space where healthcare professionals give us the inside scoop on their journey to becoming a specialist doctor. With transparency and truth, you'll hear about their professional experiences, personal sacrifices, and work-life balance. A Doctor's Insight, medical students and foundation doctors, this one's for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Doctor's Insight. Today we have uh, Mr. Carlton Bland. So Mr. Nick Carlton Bland graduated from St. George's School, University of London with distinction. He holds a first class honours degree from the University of Leeds and a master's from Manchester Business School. He underwent basic surgical training in London and was appointed to a national training number in neurosurgery in 2009. He has trained in San Francisco, Sydney, and in four neurosurgical units in the northwest of England. He was admitted as a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 2015 and has completed a two-year complex spinal neurosurgery fellowship. Since being appointed as a consultant neurosurgeon at the Walton Centre in 2017, Mr. Carlton Bland has run a full-time clinical practice alongside an educationalist practice. At the undergraduate level, as a senior lecturer, and lead for neurosurgery at the University of Liverpool. At postgraduate level, he's a specialist advisory committee member, past director of regional teaching for the Northwest, and is the current deputy director of medical education. He's a human factors trainer. He has won a national teaching award from the Association for Perioperative Practice, won the Postgraduate Excellence in Education Award 2020 from the Northwest School of Surgery, and was a 2023 nominee for the ACIT Silver Scalpel Award. He's also a, hu- a husband and father to three daughters. Welcome and thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to uh, speak and uh, it's a real honour to be here and thank you for such a, a lovely introduction. It all seems very uh, very grand uh, when you when you read it out like that but um, uh, I guess like anyone's career you just do little and often and uh, and start to build a career so uh yeah thank you <laughs> so can you begin by telling us a bit about your specialty so neurosurgery is a uh, specialty that i think a lot of people think they know about but maybe they don't know the reality i think the the popular culture is uh, you know millimeter fine surgical uh, uh activities within the brain stem of a patient and i think the reality can be that but often it's a a bit more prosaic so neurosurgery is a small speciality within surgery there are about 400 consultants in the UK who are uh, who practice neurosurgery and the the workload is about 50% emergency and 50% elective there are uh, a number of different sort of subspecialities but the majority of the work is spine uh, trauma and oncology they're the sort of three big hitting subspecialities within neurosurgery um so you know some of the most common uh presentations to a and e so spinal injuries head injuries uh acute strokes will be referred to neurosurgery um uh and you know things like you know back pain and and headache uh, will also be referred to as an elective setting so there's there's you know there's a huge amount of potential uh symptoms that we get referred uh so i guess yeah that's that's the sort of the broad sweep uh, of the of uh, the work that we do the subspecialities just to enunciate them um so yeah spine is probably 50 percent uh trauma and uh oncology brain tumors is 
that you know that's probably about 80% of the work and then there are other subspecialties pediatrics which um, uh, essentially pediatric neurosurgeons will cover all the main subspecialities but just for children uh, and then there's functional neurosurgery which is a kind of cool uh, putting in stimulators into the brain to help with movement disorders um, and uh, helping with with pain there's a subspecialty of oncology that just deals with skull-based pathologies often they work hand in hand with ENT surgeons um, so skull base is uh, a big part of it. There is vascular neurosurgery that is an area that's shrunk uh, from a surgeon's point of view. That's because the interventional radiologists have done and taken so much of, of that uh, workload. Um, uh, pituitary is sometimes seen as a separate speciality. So operating up the back of the nose usually to uh, remove pituitary tumors. That's sometimes seen as a separate speciality uh, to general skull base um, neurosurgery. Um, and I think that's probably most of the most of the specialties that we that we have. It seems as though there is a wide variety of subspecialties within neurosurgery. Do you get experience within each of them before you choose which one you'd like to pursue? Yeah, it's a good question. So it depends on the unit that you're in. Uh, if you are lucky enough to train in a, in a large unit, you will encounter most of these. Not every unit uh, has a paediatric uh, subspecialty. Not every unit will have a um, a functional neurosurgical service. So uh, for uh, trainees within those units, they'll have to actually go and you know, work quite hard to go to another unit to to train. There are about 20 across the UK, um, and the majority of neurosurgical training programs in the UK uh, rotate through a couple of hospitals. But there are a few just standalone um, units. And can you tell me a bit more about, you mentioned um, oncology being a major part um, of some of the presentations that you see. Can you tell me a bit more about um, a surgery or a couple of surgeries that you may undertake within a day or even a week? Yeah, so for uh, a neuro-oncology, uh, unfortunately, the majority of brain tumours that um, present to neurosurgery are at the very worst end of the scale. So um, the WHO grading, grade one, relatively benign tumour up to grade four, uh, which is the most malignant. And uh, the majority of intrinsic brain tumours, gliomas, um, coming from the gluey cells, uh, that's the origin of, of the term, the cells that kind of, they aren't the neurons themselves, but they're the cells that support the neurons, astrocytes and pendomas and so on, uh, they tend to present in the most malignant fashion, um, which is uh, obviously quite upsetting because the treatment that we give is a mixture of treatments. There is um, obviously there are medication treatments that we can give and things like chemotherapy. Uh, there are uh, treatments like radiotherapy, but surgery is still a big part of it. One, to make a diagnosis and two, to physically remove uh, the lump. But um, unlike perhaps liver surgery or skin surgery or breast surgery where we can do a very large wide local incision to to excise the tumor the whole problem with the brain and the spinal cord is that it's a load of linked structures i mean the whole brain and spinal cord is designed to carry a message from one part to the other and unfortunately the tumor cells very easily slide up and down those axons um, and spread throughout so so often the the goal of surgery is not to completely excise we can't do that um, and so uh, we are effectively palliating uh, the patient and so the median survival for a, a grade four you know, butterfly glioblastoma is still around perhaps two two and a half years that's with the current uh, state of technology even with the uh, the, the new magnetic therapy that we add in for the tumor treating fields, which is a new um, 
external inv invention that we've uh, uh, come up with, uh, still it's a pretty dismal uh, picture for, for neuro-oncology. So, so what, what are those tumours uh, would uh, perhaps occupy half a day's operating? Uh, it does depend on, on the location and what adjuncts we use. Um, there are some advanced technology adjuncts that we, we use, including uh, giving a special fluorescent dye that help us see the location of the tumour. If the tumour itself is in a non-eloquent area, uh, such as the part of the brain that doesn't help you see, speak or hear, um, then we would treat that under general aesthetic. If the tumour is in an area that is eloquent, i.e. it's the speech area or the vision area or, or, or what have you, the movement area, um, then we might do the, the patient uh, surgery with electro monitoring or even with a patient awake. Um, and uh, obviously in those circumstances, we're constantly trying to make that judgment between maximal resection and leaving function. Uh, and what we have come to understand is that, um, and I guess the, one of the big goals and memes of neurosurgery is to preserve neurological function, uh, that we know we're not going to achieve a full oncological clearance. So we need to remove as much as possible, but leave function. We understand that patients who have a deficit, a new weakness or a visual problem or a speech problem have a, obviously a worse quality of life, but actually they live less long. So preservation of the function is absolutely the key uh, to uh, to our neurosurgical practice. And based on what you're saying, it sounds like neurosurgery depends on technological advancements to aid in these procedures. So how would you describe um, your specialty from when you first started until how it's evolved currently? Yeah, I think that's a very good observation. Neurosurgery is a massively techie speciality, um, and this comes from uh the advancements we've had in ct scanning so jeffrey hounsfield uh, back in st george's introduced the ct scan in 19 in the 1970s that allowed us to really see with inside the skull and see where the lesion is going to be but the mri scan uh, has really pushed things forward that was uh, uh, designed in nottingham in the 1980s and that uh, allows us to see uh, the white matter tracts and see where the, the lesions are. And that's really allowed us to understand the location. Before these inventions, we were purely guided by guesswork and examining the patient and listening to the history to guess where the lesion is. These things have made it possible to see uh, where they are. I think the major advance advances in my lifetime really is the translation of knowing where the lesion is to the to within the operating room to be able to actually find the lesion and do something about it um, and so neuro navigation so using uh, a computer guidance system is is one of the the big steps forwards now when i started as a medical student i first saw um, a craniotomy uh, at st george's um, in 2003 they had for a couple of years had this new cranial navigation system where we load in the MRI and CT and then we use a computer guidance system to locate it and this seemed absolutely incredible and space-aged um, and so that technology has been around for you know 20-25 years but um, it's become more and more uh, useful to actually uh, perform the surgeries and now certainly at the Walton Centre where I'm working uh, at the moment we've now got a surgical robot that uses that ability to uh, know exactly where the patient is and to, and to navigate and that now is allowing us to perform surgeries and it's guiding the surgeries it's not yet autonomously doing the surgeries but it's that kind of next step I think uh, to a kind of uh, you know semi-automated um, 
procedures. We also have a robot at the Walton Centre that helps us place um, the deep brain stimulator electrodes. So again, a straight line trajectory to bring the electrode very, very super accurately to where we want to place it. So I think those technologies are, are huge within the operating theatre. Um, I think the other technologies which perhaps are uh, less um, impressive visually but are super important is actually our technology to analyse data and to actually understand what we do in terms of outcome. So previously, a lot of neurosurgery, uh, you know, cranial work, spinal work was based on, and look, this is the scan, we've removed the tumour or we've put these, these bits of metal in or, or, or what have you. But there was no kind of nod to how the patient is at the end of it. Are they better? Have we actually, you know, improved their quality of life, their, you know, their length of life? Um, have we got rid of their, their pains or, or, or what have you? And so I think that there's been a big move to move away from radiological outcomes to clinical outcomes. And I think that's across the whole of medicine and surgery. Um, but it's made a big difference, I think, to how we understand you know, the efficacies of our of our treatments. And I think that we are on an exciting cusp um, with the datafication because then we can process it with you know uh, artificial intelligence and I think that um, chat GPT has taken the world by storm uh, and impressed a lot of people uh, with how how clever the the artificial intelligence is and how the, the processing how powerful that processing is and I think that um, medicine generally will be moving in that direction where we will be training AI algorithms to you know we'll train them with with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of examples, um, and that will uh, become perhaps the standard for diagnosis. And we, we have this with uh, Watson, uh, which IBM uh, own, uh, and they treat they uh, trained at, at the um, uh, at the uh, in an ophthalmology setting, and they they gave 120,000 fundi to this Watson algorithm. And now, if you show uh, the AI a picture of a of a fundus of the back of the eye it will make a diagnosis more accurately and more consistently than, than a human being um, and I think that um, for lots and lots of image-based specialities so think radiology think histopath um, think you know x-rays and MRIs you know radiology generally um, I think that the training is probably ha probably happening right now uh, and will very soon be really really uh powerful and, and you know oh, it sounds like pie in the sky but we've already had it for for 20 years because the there's ai in the ecg uh, leads out when you when you get an ecg tracing there's an ai saying that this is abnormal ecg consider this as a diagnosis so we, we already have these decision support tools so i think it will come across the board um and i think that that these areas of growth are are going to be really really powerful it's going to be great for patients because you as a doctor could have a bad day or have an off day or even be someone who makes a favorite diagnosis um the ai won't do that it'll just base it on data and it will continuously add um uh, to, to its knowledge and so it'll just get better and better and better and it may be that we give most mrs or most um uh, histologies to the ai primarily and it only flags up if there's a if there's an issue um, so I think that the, the my speciality, you know, neurosurgery has benefited hugely from imaging and then uh, the accuracy has been improved by, uh, you know, robots and so on. But I think the future is going to be that processing, that post-processing by artificial intelligence. Wow. How exciting. It's impressive, <laughs> isn't it? And I've heard a few conversations um, about AI and its impact in medicine in the future. Um, and it seems like a lot of people 
are confident that will have a positive impact on patient care and patient outcomes. But I heard an interesting point raised by someone um, who is quite concerned that it's going to negatively impact the clinical acumen and diagnostic skills of doctors. How would you respond to that? 100%. I mean, I think whenever something comes along which is so accurate and so powerful, um, unless we're careful, unless we continue to uh, educate, then you could get de-skilled. And I think that's one of the concerns about the surgical robot, that um, the majority of the pedicle screws that I will put into a to a case um, will be guided by the robot. It makes it super accurate for the patient, uh, makes it very unstressful for me because it's so super accurate. But the surgeons in training don't get the opportunity to to kind of learn their craft um, but you could argue, you know, against that counter narrative that, that is it moral to have surgeons who aren't fully trained kind of practice their craft on a, even if they're supervised, practice their craft on a living person? Maybe we should have everyone get to a level of excellence on a simulator or on models before we unleash them on the public. And you'd, you could always analogize it to the aviation industry um, that, you know, you have to do your flying hours on the simulator. You have to pass everything. You have to take on critical moments of engines burning out and maybe with better technology, we'll be able to simulate a lot of operations and actually qualify almost primarily with simulation before we uh, before we are sort of let loose on patients. And I think that patients would kind of expect that. Um, using that aviation analogy further, um, we don't fly an autopilot all the time. I mean, we do, we do, but certainly the pilots keep their skills up. They will take over flying, they will land, and they will take the plane off. They won't always use the artificial intelligence for that. And so you, you would have a responsibility as a surgeon not to sit there, feet up, reading the paper. You would actually have a responsibility to maintain your skills. And so, yeah, I, I, I understand that um, uh, that concern. And I think that, that that's where we as educationalists really need to step in there to ensure that the teaching is good, that the simulation and, and the advanced uh, uh, education is, is there. Um, so, yeah. So I, 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 I accept that, but I think that the the overwhelming benefits um, of this technology is there. So if you're in Glasgow or if you're on the Isle of Man or if you're in the uh, south of England, somewhere leafy, you get the same high quality diagnosis and surgical or, or, or medical care. It shouldn't be based on uh, on individual variations or hospital variations. And I think that, that in the NHS, we have a very exciting prospect that, you know, there's no financial constraints to not have all 65 or 70 million people's health records combined in a way um, to make a very, very powerful um, uh, data set on which to train um, these decisions. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it, it's exciting, but there are definitely um, concerns. And I, I guess some of the concerns with the data sampling are the kind of concerns that we have with randomised control trials now. That tends to be young, white, male college students who who, who volunteer their time for a lot of these um, randomised control trials. And that is not a demographic that represents the entirety of, uh, of, of the patients we're treating. So I think actually um, uh, the big data, because we'll have much bigger numbers, we'll actually get better granularity uh, about how the treatments work for specific demographics, ages, uh, what have you. Yeah, definitely. And it's all about representation and making sure that um, the demographic of patients that are treated is actually not treated, sorry, um, that we look at in terms of sampling is actually representative of the population of patients that 
doctors see and actually treat. Yeah. So yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your favourite part of the specialty? Because I know we talked a lot about the presentations you may see, the tech, the advancements in AI. So what do you really enjoy about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a fantastically interesting speciality. I think the, you know, the 50% emergency is always exciting. There's, uh, you know, there's always a story behind how an injury or, or something happens. So there's, a, there's an interest from the point of view of, you know, on a human scale. Um, and I think that the interest over perhaps other acute surgical specialties like ortho or general is the diagnosis. And I and I and I really love uh, the fact that neurosurgery that there is you know there's, there's that, that sort of academic problem solving almost detective work that you know the wiring diagram of the brain, the spinal cord, um, the peripheral nerves, and you have to try and relate what you know to the clinical presentation and say you know uh, you know where the lesion might be and what the nature of the lesion might be. So there's still that kind of academic interest and that you get. Um, so I really like that. And obviously, like all surgeons, we have a very tangible outcome. Um, I think with with medicine, occasionally you will get that very quick and swift and very effective uh, treatment of, of a condition. But really, surgery, that's where you get it par excellence. And that for you as an individual is very, very rewarding to 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 you know, learn the anatomy, to learn how to perform the surgical skills over multiple cases, to watch videos, to go away to courses and then be able to bring all that together, to be able to communicate to the patient, to be able to take good consent and then to be able to deliver the surgery and then have a good outcome. It, it, it brings together so many threads of skills that you've had to acquire. Um, and it is massively satisfying to be able to put that together and to be able to help a patient. And, and in neurosurgery, um, obviously we remove spinal cord tumours or, or brain tumours, but the, the things which are seen as perhaps little, like helping a patient with awful radiculopathy, it, that's not tiny. We we recognise that radiculopathy is a huge burden of disease. Perhaps 10 to 50 percent of the population at any one time have horrible shooting pain in their arm or in their leg. Um, well, this is awful for them in terms of living their life, looking after their children, going to work, being on medication, even sleeping. And so we recognise that from a small operation, perhaps taking an hour, we can get rid of pain um, for that patient, allow them to get back to living their life, to get off the medications. Um, and certainly in terms of quality adjusted life years, we understand that treatment of radiculopathy is in the top three of all surgical interventions. So we've got a, a very broad and interesting uh, speciality, lots of emergency work, which is fast paced and quite interesting. There's lots of clever chin stroking um, kind of neuroanatomy things like the functional neurosurgery and, and so on. Uh, which 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 appeals um and then fundamentally the interventions that we do can often have big uh important uh improvements in the patient care and kind of being there for patients when they are you know in a bad way they've had a, a terrible polytrauma head injuries spinal injuries and we're, and we're there to help you know piece the patient back together so i, I think there's, there's a huge amount of satisfaction um and i think in addition to that like all surgery, not just unique to neurosurgery, there are so many opportunities to have a parallel career. So for me, very much education is my is my thing. It's what I really love. But you can be a, a really great researcher. You can be a great leader or or or, 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 or manager um, alongside with a speciality. So I think it, it just gives so much opportunity for you to find that niche where your skill set really matches, you know, th those areas. So I think it's I think it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's very fascinating and I like that you highlighted 
there's a variety of things that you can do as a neurosurgeon. So you have the ability to communicate with patients, but also practice those surgical skills. And then neurosurgery seems to be at the forefront of um, tech advancements and things. So that's quite exciting as well. Mm. On the flip side, if there's any answer to it, what's your least favourite part about the specialty? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the uh, what I've alluded to before, I, I guess one of the most common presentations in neurosurgery would be a malignant brain tumour. Uh, and the fact that all of what I've talked about, all the tech and all the all the skills still fundamentally hasn't made a huge difference to survival. I think it's those patients that you can't help. And, and uh, uh, you know, we receive patients with you know very bad brain injury and, and there are things that we can do we can you know remove blood clots and we can stem bleeding and we can remove sections of bone if the, if the brain is swelling but fundamentally the the fundamental biochemical cellular level problem for trauma and for tumors surgery is not probably going to be the answer and i think that yeah for tumors i think it's going to be immunotherapy uh, is probably going to be the way we're going to crack that one and i think for neurotrauma well, probably primary prevention, everyone driving at 30 and wearing helmets is probably going to be the best way to cure that. But in terms of secondary uh, things, I think that's going to be a biochemical phenomenon. And it's not for want of trying. Obviously, we have uh, been looking uh, as a profession for, for years and years and years for that tool. But I think that breakthrough will come as well. But I, I think that we can only achieve so much uh, in terms of our intervention. And that is a frustrating thing that patients who are too badly injured or patients who present with tumours, we can still only buy them a relatively short amount of time and I think that's that's probably the, the hardest thing to to deal with. It sounds like it can be quite disheartening as well so how do you navigate that when you um, meet a patient who has potentially a stage four um, that you have to palliate? Yeah that's it's really awful and I think that um, there is no easy way to do it and I, and I don't know and when you speak to a, a medical oncologist it would be interesting to hear how they deal with this continuous tragedy and it is a tragedy you, you have to tell a patient as I did uh, about you know what the histology is and one of the questions will be back well how long have I got to live doc and it's it's awful to, to have to say well we don't know but we're measuring it in in months rather than decades and, and you know that's that's your reality. that is hard to say and obviously we have lots of uh, mentoring for communication skills we have lots of practice but the reality is, is it's hard to tell a patient face to face that they've got this condition and that they are going to die from this. Um, and so that's hard for them. That's hard for us. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we, we if we don't process this kind of sadness um, and, and difficult situations, I think, you know, it could lead to burnout. And we know that burnout in medicine generally is, is, is a common and probably one of the most common reasons to leave the job. And so we have to process this. And I think that the world has changed and the kind of stiff upper lip and just get on with it and uh, and whatever has gone. And I think that people are a lot more open. And I, yeah, there are there is counselling and there's there's lots of other um, services there. But probably the best counselling um, that you receive are colleagues because colleagues have been exactly in your shoes. They have true empathy um, with how bad it is. And I think that that release and that discussion um, is one way to process and to deal with what is very difficult for you as a practitioner because obviously it's hellishly bad for the patient but you're having to perhaps give this diagnosis as I would do perhaps five times in an afternoon and that's that that takes its toll and you 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 have to um you have to you know this is like resilience you have to build resilience well yes you do but you're a human being and you don't want to become a detached 
you know, distant person. But I can understand why people become like that, because it's it's self-protection. Um, but I think it's that middle ground of, of really having empathy, feeling the hurt, but also being able to process it and and uh, and, you know, and not take it home with you. Uh, and I think that that's a real skill. And I'd be interested to hear your podcast with, you know, oncologists and people who do this as their entire job, because it, it's, you know, it, it certainly takes its toll on me uh, when I am in that situation. Based on um, the other clinicians that I've spoken to, they've all said something similar, which is that you need to talk to your colleagues. And it's really important to have a supportive team around you in order to help navigate and deal with those feelings when they do come up. Absolutely. And I think that that's that's one of the reasons to to, to foster those good relations with your colleagues, because you are there for each other and you are such great support, better than any anyone else you could really speak to, I think, or anything else you, you could do is to share, because almost everyone you speak to has been in a similar situation. Um, but I think if you know, things were really getting to you and I found paediatric neurosurgery as a subspecialty really, really harrowing. And I recognised it. Because I had, yeah, I, I thought of it as, as a potential specialty. I recognised that, and I recognised that I couldn't do that job. Um, I would find it too upsetting, and I think that I would, you know, have a foreshortened career, or I'd become very hardened potentially, and that's not where I wanted to be. So I think, you know, reflection. We always talk about this in, in training. Oh, reflection, reflection. But it has genuine uses, uh, dear listener. It really does, and it it does. Um, I think allow you to have a forum to to look at this and in the cold light of day to discuss it um, and it'll help you hopefully make wise decisions uh, about where you're headed in your in your future. So there are a lot of things to consider when thinking about what specialty you want to pursue. What resource would you recommend to junior doctors or even medical students who would like to get a comprehensive perspective of neurosurgery? Yeah I mean I think that uh yeah, people have a lot of pre-existing ideas about what neurosurgery or what, you know, cardiac surgery or what, what whatever the speciality is, what it's like. Um, and one of the big things that we look at when we're interviewing uh, and when we're selecting for national neurosurgery selection is that the person doesn't have a Gray's Anatomy view of neurosurgery, but has a very realistic 3D concrete view of what the realities of the speciality is. The only real way to get that, I think, is to do a decent length uh, observation, not a, not a day, but, you know, a number of weeks uh, at a unit or perhaps at a couple of times within their medical student or or uh, junior doctor career. Um, it gives documentary evidence that they have a good idea of the speciality. But in reality, you see what it's, you see what it's like and you see the highs and you see the lows. Um, and I think as a medical student, when I went through. Uh, looking at the the various specialities and trying to decide where I was going to go, um, the placements that I had were super useful to kind of look at that. You know, what are the highs? What are the lows? Um, what do I want to do with my day um, or do with my week? Uh, what's it going to look like? Um, because obviously the academic reading the books or watching the videos is only just a snapshot of the reality of, of, of what it's like to do a job. So I think, yeah, I think that um, it's great to watch the videos and go in the courses, but I think a sustained placement to observe the speciality um, is, is it's got to be the key, I think. And there's so many specialties that you could have chosen. So why neurosurgery? Um, yeah, so I was a, when I was a medical student, enjoyed every single speciality. I found the academic, the studying, the questions, I found everything interesting and I really didn't know. Uh, and I really quite liked ITU and, you know, all 
playing with all the sort of physiological parameters and and intervening. But when I did a surgical placement, which was um, cardiac surgery, I really thought that, yeah, I like all of the acute physiology and the knowledge base, but I actually like doing things with my hands. I'm quite sort of an, an activist. Um, and uh, I enjoyed all sorts of surgery again. But when it, with neurosurgery, it had that, as I said, that appeal of the real complex anatomy, the detective work um, and surgery. And so it had basically a little bit of everything um, that really appealed. And and uh, um, so so, yeah, I, I think I think that was probably what appealed. And uh, I saw Henry Marsh do my the very first neurosurgery I saw was Henry Marsh doing a craniotomy for a tumour with Equinox blasting out in a beautiful um, Edwardian mansion house in Will in um, uh, Wimbledon Village. So it was such a, a heady cocktail of impressive, uh, impressive. It, it made a massive, massive uh, impression on me. And I think when you first go to surgery, the lights, the bright lights, the the drama, the, the, the you know the smells, everything is so intoxicating. And to see the brain thumping away there, and then to you know see the brain opened up carefully and the tumour uh, resected. This just absolutely blew my mind. So I really did have that very classic kind of absolutely amazed by the surgery. Um, but the rest of my placements, I actually found all the the other stuff, the examining the patients and then making the diagnosis interesting as well. So it, for me, it just combined uh, all the all the interesting stuff together. And what is the actual training pathway like? Yeah, so it's an eight-year training pathway. So um, you uh, do your medical school uh, and then foundation, and then at the end of F two, you can apply to an eight-year training program, ST one two eight. Um, the uh, way that we select for neurosurgery uh, is based on a competitive uh, entry. I mean, it's very similar to lots of other medical specialties. You do the um, MSRA, the sort of uh, the general medicine uh, um, qualification. You have to score well on that. Uh, but then also you have to show commitment to the speciality. Um, it's useful to have done some of the surgical courses um, and it's useful to have shown some sort of dedication towards you know neurosurgery perhaps with uh you know closing a loop of an audit or research or what have you um uh, that you then apply uh, and you're asked the usual kind of questions where you have to try and anticipate how to score highly in the uh, application form and then you're interviewed and pre-covid we were doing dexterity tests and you know, um, looking at the uh, operative skills the stitching skills and 3d skills post-covid we haven't yet gone back to doing a physical assessment so it's very much a zoom style interview um, looking at you know, motivation to enter the speciality, dedication to the speciality, um, and perhaps looking at um, the knowledge base and looking at yeah you know, how uh, that individual has kind of prepared themselves to problem solve and to think on their feet. Uh, and so that's the selection process. And then we have three big chunks uh, of of training. We have phase one, which is the ST one and two years, which is the the general kind of neurosurgical training, including doing something that isn't neurosurgery like A&E or perhaps ENT surgery or some other allied speciality. Some people do radiology, some people do intensive care, but something that gives you that grounding of a, of a good acute doctor uh, with neurosurgery uh, skills add on top of it. And then the second phase of training is really your general neurosurgery, where you become conversant in trauma and hydrocephalus, um, tumours and spine. And, and spine is such a massive part of what neurosurgery does. It's probably 50% of the consultants and perhaps, you know, two thirds of all the workload. Um, there's a lot more requirements in the second phase of training ST3 to 
six, I think it is now, um, to get spinal competencies. Uh, and then the final year or so of the training, the phase three, is really working on that subspeciality interest. So if you want to do, you know, vascular or if you want to do hydrocephalus and trauma, um, that's where you uh, really uh, focus on those specific operations um, and perhaps um, go to do a specific kind of uh, um, fellowship within the training scheme. Now, you may have heard or you may not have heard that in neurosurgery, generally, we've kind of over recruited for the last decade. And there are a huge number of trainees who've been through medical school foundation ST1 to 8 and then don't have a job at the end of it. And unfortunately, um, there are lots of rules that I won't go into uh, now, but there's lots of reasons why that's occurred. So for this group of doctors, obviously, they are committed to uh, neurosurgery and they're trained. And so um, what is usually done then is perhaps to do an extra year of fellowship and that can be done abroad it doesn't have to be done abroad it can be done in the UK and perhaps one or two years of fellowship to really allow you to to uh, uh, gain those extra clinical skills some um, uh, people will go out and do some research maybe do a PhD uh, to uh, if they're interested in academia and they feel it might enhance their appointability as a consultant and so um, so it's, it's a long slog it's a long slog there's no getting away from it it's not uh, it's, it's uh, yeah ourselves and orthopedics uh, i think are are some of the longest trainings in terms of of those those years um so uh that's a sort of slightly prolonged snapshot of uh, of the training pathway so that was very detailed and i'm sure people will appreciate that it sounds quite exciting but as you said long and intense so what would you say are some of the personal or professional sacrifices that you have to be mindful of when going into neurosurgery yeah, I mean, I think you, you definitely do. And, and it is absolutely an ultra marathon and not a sprint. Um, and so I think that um, I think that you, you have to, as we talked about before, you have to have some time in the speciality. If you're not someone who, you know, is that interested in doing anything apart from you know, deep brain stimulation, then neurosurgery is not for you because that's a, only a very, very small area. Uh, and there's lots of general surgery uh, to be done. There's lots of, you know, spinal uh, decompressions. There's lots of decompressive craniectomies. There's lots of kind of um, surgery that we need to, uh, to, to to do. And and we do sometimes get a very, very academic-y type of person who doesn't really like operating, but likes the idea of neurosurgery. And neurosurgery really is surgery. Um, and, and so you do need to have someone who has a mixture of skills of the academia, but certainly of, of the surgical um, skills. Um, so I think that you, you need to have time within the speciality to 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 make sure that this investment of your time and your money and your lifetime is, is, is kind of it's kind of worth that uh, weight um, you, you need resilience uh, as you do in every speciality um, and uh, I, I think that uh, alongside of that um, is really having that support and having a, a, a good uh support base you know having family having a partner um and you know children who are understanding and and i i think you know i was very lucky i met my wife when i was 20 uh when we we're both students and so um she has kind of grown up uh with me uh doing you know loads and loads of weekends lots of night shifts being tired not being present to uh to do things i mean i don't want to over the pudding european working time directives has been one of the, the most beneficial uh changes that we've had to allow us to have a family life 
um, you know, 48 hours a week mean that you can be home and you can see your children grow up. Um, but it, it obviously it counterbalances that. It makes it eight years rather than perhaps five years. Um, and uh, the numbers of, of surgeries we see is probably less with EWTD. And, and you, you know, that's why we need to be uh, educating and, and simulating to allow our surgeons of the future to, to have some family life uh, as well as be be well trained um and so i think you know that 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 is a consideration and when you look around and your friends who are doing um banking or uh i don't know uh, accountancy are you know getting company cars and 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 you know having very nice lives and having their weekends off you are not doing that you're going into with a a potential 15 year from the beginning of medical school to becoming a consultant neurosurgery 15 or, or 20 years maybe um you are you know, a junior doctor, that's awful term that I, I don't like, but you are a junior doctor, you're not paid wonderfully well, hence the, the strikes that we're seeing now. Um, and you're working lots and lots of nights and weekends and, you know, you can look around and think, who else is doing this kind of level uh, of, of input? So, um, so that these are all considerations because if you, you know, are a bit meh about going into neurosurgery, well, then, you know, Eight years is a, is a very, very long time to not earn very much and to do lots and lots of nights and weekends and uh, and to not see your family as much as you would like. Um, so I, I, I guess I don't want to over egg it. And uh, and I think the other question I often get asked, you may be about to ask me about, you know, women going into neurosurgery. Um, it is possible. Um, there is a, a lot more in the way of. Well, in fact, it's a blanket rule. That if you ask for less than full time training, the employer has to give it you which is fantastic. So it's no longer the case. Oh, I don't want to ask, you know, oh, I don't ask, you know, could I go down to three days a week? Could I do a master's degree? Could I, um, you know, have children, have maternity leave and come back? All of these things are absolutely yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, and, I, you know, and, and, and women in neurosurgery to, to carry on with that, it, is still quite low. I mean, we know that uh, females make up more than half of medical graduates, but we only have perhaps about 10% consultant neurosurgeons are women. So um, there's a lot more to do. That may be a generational thing which will alter or maybe um, the kind of perception of being at work all the time and, and so on might go against the perceptions of could I have, you know, a family? Could I do less than full-time training? Well, we have consultant neurosurgeons at the Walton Centre who have done exactly that. So, so it, it is possible to do. Is it really easy to do? No, I'm sure it isn't. Um, and when I have my days of childcare responsibilities, doing the school run um, and, and so on. It is difficult. It's a lot easier as a consultant to do a drop off or to do a pick up or, or to juggle around your day. It is less easy as a you know, registrar or a doctor in training, but these things are doable. Again, circling back to having really good working relationships with your colleagues. There's, there's always a way to, to get around um, these issues if need be, but you need to have that really strong uh working relations with your with your colleagues it's absolutely vital to you for you to function in uh in the uh in the speciality or in you know the hospital more generally you absolutely read my mind because i was going to ask you about women in neurosurgery so thank you for answering. well well <laughs> if you're thinking about it uh, we'd be very very happy uh, because i think that it, it it's a speciality that needs to really uh, expand up and and uh, you know and, and I think it, it it is to an extent but uh, um, but yeah no it's it's absolutely um, uh, open and I, I, I'd need to look at the figures but I think we we had a uh, I think a 25% uh, female uh, appointment rate I think last year so that's still not 50% but it, we are certainly headed in the right um, direction and, and really reflecting the medical school uh, workforce in in our uh, consultant um, 
and uh, a neurosurgical trainee appointments. That's reassuring to hear. So we talked extensively about neurosurgery, but just going more generally as we close the podcast into advice um, for medical students and foundation doctors. So what would you say to those students who may be feeling a bit overwhelmed at this point in their career? So you're feeling overwhelmed by just, I say just, by doing the medical degree or feel overwhelmed in terms of where do, where am I headed? What do I do? Or... Yeah, where, where are they headed? Their prospects in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a concern. I mean, I think that, that medicine generally is an incredibly portable and useful degree to have. Um, and um, I think that uh, even outside of medicine, having a medical degree is very classically safe for the city and investment banking. I'm not suggesting all your podcasters uh, ditch medicine and go and work in investment banks, but it's a degree that's very well recognised because to get onto a medical degree and to complete it, you will be in the very you know, top kind of echelons of hard work um, and uh, will know how to study and will have very good interpersonal skills and uh, time management skills. So it's a very useful degree as, as a marker. Um, I think within medicine uh, generally, it's uh, it's 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 it, 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 yeah, it is hard. Uh, and even though you know getting a, a ticket to go to medical school sounds like, oh, you know, all your worries are over. It's a very long slog um, and uh, there are lots of demands made and you know, demands in terms of you know, relationships and money and, and um, living your life and studying. Um, so I think that um, trying to um, I think trying to just really de-escalate those feelings and just really you know, getting your head down and getting through one thing at a time is the way to do it to to, to kind of chunk it into I'm just going to yeah, work for the next exam or I'm just going to work and enjoy the next topic I'm going to maybe take a day to think about you know what I want to do for my elective and I'm going to do something about it you know a year in advance or nine months in advance I'm not going to just put it off and put it off and then have no elective arranged and so I think that you know time management they always say this but it's, it's generally true will reduce those stresses um and i think as regards um getting through the exams well you know medical school is still uh it, it, we, we are all there speaking as a, a senior lecturer at liverpool we're all there and we spend all of our energies to maximize the education and to maximize the chance of of getting through uh, medical school or not just getting through but being excellent and really being ready and prepared to work as a ju- junior doctor um uh, being a junior doctor again i shouldn't be using that term but a doctor in training um is tough um it is but it is a time limited thing um and i think that when you reflect looking backwards your transition from primary school to secondary school big school seemed very scary uh, when you were a year seven um and it was scary wasn't it but you got over it and then you became a year later and you had your strut and that's exactly what you get when you go from a foundation doctor to perhaps a, an st doctor yes the responsibility goes up but you also learn and you get better and better and you are not alone and that peer support and support from your you know your senior doctors um uh, will be there uh, to 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 make that uh, a thing i think the other thing that uh, medical students and certainly junior doctors um are concerned about is you know where do i head to in terms of career um and i think it's easy to get very caught up and look around and find one person who's who's published 100 papers and has started their own medical journal and has been you know no- nominated for a nobel prize and that is just not realistic and that is not required to get into orthopedic or neurosurgical or cardiac or or neurology or you you don't have to be the finished product what you should do 
uh, is really show that interest and, and do one thing a year is what I tend to recommend to all the medical students. One thing, an audit, perhaps in an area that's vaguely oriented, do a closely audit, that's even better. Um, do do a placement, perhaps attend a webinar or a course in that speciality. Um, if you can get involved with a project and you get your name onto something that's been presented, you can present it yourself or even if it is published, that's great. I mean, that's great. It is not an absolute requirement. Um, so I think just do one thing a year because you very quickly, if you're you know, a fourth or a fifth year foundation, foundation two, you might have four or five little things you can put in your CV that you know show that interest distinguish you as someone who who makes that um effort and so um i think that, that those you know one thing a year kind of strategy is is probably what you need to do i do acknowledge it's a lot harder for medical students now and junior doctors now than it was in my day i decided on neurosurgery really late as, as a sho um and i think nowadays if you want to go into very competitive specialities um uh, you know that uh, you need to probably start that process as a medical student unfortunately because it's just so competitive people are constantly thinking about where they're headed how the heck you know as a medical student that you want to become a dermatologist um, is beyond me but I think if it's there as an interest I think that you you can do that and working smart so for, for instance for me I enjoyed orthopedics I enjoyed neurosurgery um, so I did my uh, my sort of little bit of interest in spine because spine is in both orthopedics and neurosurgery and if you're going to do yeah oh i quite like orthopedics or, or plastic surgery do a hand project or a hand spot because again that has to crossover and i'm sure in medicine um there's lots of very similar examples where you can do one piece of work that actually you could talk about for a number of different potential um specialities or or or, uh, or training pathways um so yeah, it, it's a hard slog. Um, it is 100%, I think, worth it. And and anyone who doesn't tell you that working as a consultant is not a load better than working in training is, is I think, incorrect. I think it is much, much better. Uh, and it, 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 is, it is great to work as a consultant. There are other pressures uh, that are, are you know, really difficult to deal with, but generally speaking, um, it is a, a much nicer uh, life. And so it's really, you know, getting your head down and, and continuing on uh and yeah and, and planning uh what you're going to do i think is the uh is the uh the final thing i would say about that <laughs> so being proactive and understanding that it will get better yeah i think it is and it's sad that we have to say it will get better uh like we're like we're giving up and saying well just being a junior doctor is just a very hard yeah a very hard time of your life but it is necessarily because you're going from a you know five or six years of sort of receiving information and processing it and then suddenly the next year F1, you are processing, making decisions, putting your name to it and making clinical decisions on patients. And so the learning curve and the responsibility curve is a big jump. And junior doctors now are massively better supported with allied professionals, prescribing pharmacists, decision support software like the AI type stuff we're talking about still doesn't make it any less kind of stressful. Uh, and so um, as that learning curve flattens you know, you feel more in command and you feel more uh comfortable with where you are but unfortunately and this this is across all professional uh activities my wife's a, a lawyer and she found this too that when you start a new area of law you're back at the beginning and it's hugely stressful and, and it it is just the nature of being a professional in a high stakes complicated environment um but 
that learning curve flattens as you will remember in anything that you learn uh, and when you, you're going through your, your late registrar years as a consultant it's rare that you haven't seen this kind of thing before and ultimately we are like an AI algorithm because we are pattern recognition I've seen that before that's what we did that was the outcome and you learn and you learn and you learn that's what wisdom is isn't it it's knowledge and experience put together that's wisdom and you become quite wise as a senior reg and quite wise as a consultant and it makes it easier and more manageable. And now for our closing question. So what is the best piece of advice that you have been given that has shaped you as a clinician? Well, I think the, is it advice or was it support? I don't know. Um, when I were a lad, <laughs> back in the early uh, sort of noughties, um, surgical training, if you didn't go from job to job to job to job to job in a teaching hospital, you were, you, were, you were toast, especially in London. It was so obsessed about going from teaching hospital to teaching hospital. Um, and if you if you went out into the sticks, that's it. Oh, I'll never get a job in London. Um, and I, around the time of modernising medical careers, you may not remember that, but modernising medical careers came in and it completely changed the way that junior doctors were employed and the way that they were uh, appointed. So it was a huge change. And essentially, we... Uh, as junior doctors had very little insight into what our future was going to be and where our next job was going to be. Uh, and so in a sort of fit of, I wouldn't say annoyance, but in a kind of, what's the point? Um, I decided to go travelling. Uh, it was part of, actually, I got married and for our honeymoon, we did a six month travelling around the world. How wonderful. And went to oh, Thailand and cool. Japan and Australia. Wonderful time. Okay. But yeah, no, it was an amazing thing to do. And I think that the the issue is with it that had that been in the 1990s, my, I think my surgical career would have been very, very difficult to come back from taking six months out. They always used to ask you on your application form, have you taken more than four weeks out? What was the reason? And I was told that if you had any reason, that was it. You weren't going to be committed to surgery. Um, well, I came back uh, and I applied to a surgical training and I was interviewed by um wonderful director of, of surgery, Swana Body, um, in, in London. And in the interview, she brought up, oh, I see you went travelling for six months. And I just had this absolute feeling sick. My stomach dropped. Oh, no, this is it. This is where my surgical career goes over. And without even missing a beat, she said, that's absolutely wonderful. I went travelling to, you know, where, 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 where. Was it, what was it like? Was it fun? And not only did she say, do you know what? It doesn't matter that you've taken six months out and you've lived your life. It doesn't matter. It's actually a positive. I think that for me was one of the most kind and wonderful things. I mean, obviously, I got on to get a, a surgical job and, and began my, my, my journey, I guess, in, into surgery. But that for me was just a, a transformational uh, change, really. The old surgery... I would have been out. New surgery, we encompass you know, diversity, doing different things with your career. I was a graduate entry student, so I hadn't gone to medical school at age 18. I'd actually gone there later at 22. You know, that would have potentially counted against me in the old kind of guard. Um, but in the sort of modern world, didn't matter that I'd been to graduate entry, didn't matter that I'd had six months out traveling. It was only seen as a positive. And, you know, and the rest, as they say, is history. So um, I would say that if you have listeners out there who are thinking of taking time, um, uh, do not see it as a negative. You must live your life. Uh, you only live once. And so these things are accommodatable within, uh, you know, training to become a neurosurgeon. You can do it. And I think 
more and more um, with our generation, we want to take time to explore other interests. So that is a very relevant piece of advice that I will definitely take away and hopefully the listeners will too. <laughs> um, take, a, take a break. Just go take a break. It's <laughs> <a> great. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to me today. That was an interesting conversation. And I now come away having learned more about AI and neurosurgery. And I'm going to think about it a lot more than I have in the past. So thank you so what, what much. A, what a heady cocktail to uh, to process. Uh, well, thank you very much, and and I I've really enjoyed having a having a good chat. Um, and uh, yeah, and hopefully this is this podcast is is uh, going to be useful and and will hopefully change a few minds and uh, hopefully get a few more uh, people to consider my speciality uh, as a career.